Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. Prime Minister Narendra Modi today launching a blistering attack on the Congress saying it does not have neta, niti or raniti, leader, ideology or battle strategy. One of Mr. Modi's strategies is going to be to make this election a presidential election with Rahul Gandhi versus Modi. People in the opposition say that this strategy will be irrelevant because we are fighting for the soul of India. I know Congress is hoping, as Congress has always done, that Mr. Modi would lose on his own steam, that he would commit mistakes, which he is, and Congress would be the accidental beneficiary. That's not going to happen. In this episode, can India's Narendra Modi and the BJP hold on to power in the world's biggest election? Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia research specialists at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia researchers about the issues behind the news headlines in a region that's rapidly changing the world. India is the world's largest democracy with 830 million people eligible to vote in its national poll due in early 2019. With a voter base so large and in a country of massive ethnic and linguistic diversity, political campaigns in India are often complicated, messy and unpredictable. In 2014, the then Chief Minister of Gujarat State, Narendra Modi, led the Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, to win an outright majority in India's lower house. In the process, delivering a crushing blow to the Indian National Congress Party, led by Rahul Gandhi, the son of former Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi, grandson of Indira Gandhi and the great-grandson of India's founding Prime Minister Nehru. So when India goes to the polls again in April or May of 2019, the BJP will be hoping to repeat their success. But what was it that delivered such a resounding victory to Modi and his party in 2014? And could the historic result be repeated? How has Modi fared so far over his first term as Prime Minister? And can the Congress party, now in opposition but long used to holding power in India, work with its allies to take back the lower house, the Lok Sabha? To discuss India's upcoming election, we're joined by political scientist Dr Pradeep Tunisia from the University of Melbourne School of Social and Political Sciences and by India historian Professor Robin Jeffrey from the Australia India Institute. Robin and Pradeep, welcome to Ear to Asia. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Ali. Robin, let's start with the sheer mechanics of this election, if you like, the world's biggest. How does it work? It's uh, a wonderful machine. It's not just the biggest. It's perhaps in many ways the fairest and the best in that the Election Commission of India, uh, which oversees all these elections, is one of those Indian institutions that in spite of so many what we say distractions, has retained a reputation for integrity and toughness and efficiency. So they now run an election that, as you've said, will involve close to 900 million voters, uh, potentially. Two-thirds of them will vote. But more than that, it will be efficient, it will be fair, and the actual casting of votes will be free Uh, within the limitations that go with a good old-fashioned election with bribery and hanky-panky of all kinds by the candidates to try to win. But the important thing is that the mechanism of the Election Commission includes 
I think probably most spectacularly, electronic voting machines, which are standalone little computers that go into more than a million polling places. And uh, those little computers record up to a couple of thousand votes. And it makes it very easy at the end of the process of electing, which can often take five weeks. At the end of the process, you can have the results within six or seven hours. But they also eliminate a great deal of uh, the kind of jiggery-pokery that goes with paper-based elections. What indeed, is there any? jiggery-pokery? Does it eliminate it entirely? Uh, It's more of the level of bribery and intimidation outside, but the actual faking of ballots in the way they used to in the good old days, when you could bring in your gang of toughs to a polling station, close the doors and simply mark the ballots, put them in the box and then return them to the polling centre. That's out now. That's not possible. Particularly that phenomenon, Robin, of booth capturing. Yes, booth capturing. Uh, So before the electronic voting machines in India, in Indian elections, both uh, the Lok Sabha elections and the state assembly elections, often you will hear reports of booths being captured, polling booths being captured by some thugs on behalf of a candidate and then stuffing the ballot boxes with the votes for their candidate. So that it doesn't happen anymore. These the machines make that machines. rather difficult. Yes. The yes. other wonderful thing with the mechanism, of course, is that even today, if you were going to do it that way, there are so many booths. The average booth has only about 800 or 1,000 people voting at that booth. So you'd need a lot of gangs of toughs, even if you were going to do it the old-fashioned physical way. Pretty, tell us a little bit about the candidates. Is it about who is standing or is it about the party they stand for? Well, in the Indian elections, the party is important, of course. But unlike in the Australian elections, for example, where political parties can take certain seats for granted, in other words, there are safe seats. In India, there's no such thing as a safe seat. There are safe candidates, but there is no such thing as a safe seat. So, for example, a candidate from a particular party could win consecutive elections from the same seat or their wife or son or daughter could win the same seat. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the same party with different candidates who are not connected to the same family could win that seat. Robin, can you explain, I suppose, the the political philosophy behind it? The political philosophy of the system, of course, was a very idealistic Fabian socialist one that went with Jawaharlal Nehru and the people around him who established this system of representation after independence. The philosophy of the candidates, there's a, an expression in Kerala, Svandam Karyam Zindabad, which means uh, victory to my own interests. It's I'm all right, Jack. So there's an I'm all right, Jack quality to so many of the candidates and big money tends to win the day by various means. And it is, we should say, first past the post. There is no preferential voting system. That's right. It's uh, first past the post. So it's a simple system in that respect. So let's talk about the opposition a little bit. Uh, I know we're a long way out from the national election. It's uh, got to be held before May next year. But is it clear, Pradeep, at this point, who will be the most effective opponents to Modi? Obviously, Modi is the strongest candidate and the BJP is the strongest party at the moment. For the Indian voters, I think it's it's a very difficult choice because Congress party did very poorly at the last election. And although Rahul Gandhi has been working hard since he took over the leadership of the party from his mother, but at the same time, he hasn't really convinced 
a lot of people. He's done better. He's improved. But he hasn't really convinced people that he is prime ministerial material. And that is the big issue. So Congress Party itself is unlikely to win a majority at the next election. But also it looks like that the BJP will also find it difficult to get a majority this time, in my view. Can we just stick with the opposition for a minute? Because I did note that Rahul Gandhi told a a group of journalists earlier this year that there will be a, quote, robust opposition alliance well before the 2019 election. And I wonder, Robin, any sign of it yet? I think it will come only in the new year and just how robust it will be remains to be seen. I think this is the, the crucial point. I mean, India has the variety of languages and cultures of Western Europe. And therefore, the political system is not surprisingly fragmented. It was a great surprise when the BJP won in its own right a majority of seats in Parliament in 2014. It was a historic. Uh, well, it, it was historic in the sense that it hadn't happened for 30 years. That is a single party to uh, win an outright majority. But uh, what's, I think, doubtful is whether that can be repeated. If we look at the giant state of Uttar Pradesh, uh, the BJP, they have 80 seats in a parliament of 540. So it's a big, big chunk. Now, the BJP won more than 70 of those seats the last time. Very hard to believe that can be replicated, I, I think, Pradeep. I think the key is going to be Uttar Pradesh. Because, as Robin said, Uttar Pradesh has 80 of the 540-plus seats in the Lok Sabha. And if you look at it, Uttar Pradesh politics is very fragmented at the moment, even though at the last election BJP won all those 70 seats. But Uttar Pradesh has a lot of identity politics. You have a party called the Bahujan Samaj Party, which is essentially the party of the Dalits or the former untouchables. And its leader, Mayawati, has been chief minister a number of times before. Then you have another party, which is more caste-based party, although it calls itself the Socialist Party or Samajwadi Party. But the Yadav caste, Yadavs are a big part of the Uttar Pradesh electorate. And Samajwadi Party is popular with the Yadav caste and other associated castes. So at the last election, I think the caste did not play a big role in the election because Modi ran on this platform of governance and development. He portrayed himself as the man of development. And people, particularly before the 2014 elections, the last five years before that, the Congress-led UPA government had not done terribly well. Its economic performance wasn't very good compared to its first term in office. And also, there were a number of high-profile corruption cases. And therefore, people were fed up. And UP, with a very large population and a very youthful population, really was looking for a leader who will provide jobs, who will provide economic opportunities. Nothing much has changed in UP in terms of employment or economic development. So I think the same voters who are now five years older and more mature are going to look at Modi's promises and see what they've actually got. And conditions haven't changed very much. The other thing with that UP election in 2014, there were a lot of four-way fights. Well, when you have a four-way fight, the most coherent party is going to come out on top. And the BJP, as Pradeep says, was far and away the most coherent party with an identifiable, what looked like a strong leader. So it, it does explain something. If you could put together a viable coalition this time, that would change the nature of the election. That would, I think, definitely change the nature of the election because if the Samajwadi Party 
of the Yadavs and the Bahujan Samaj Party of Mayawati join forces with the Congress, then I think it will make it very difficult for BJP to win UP. And if the BJP doesn't win UP, I think it will be very difficult to win the election. Well, in fact, many people are saying that, that Mayawati is, in fact, the most sought-after politician in all of India right now. Do you think that's a fair description? Is, is she someone who could, if, if neither side can really form a, you know, a suitably large alliance, could she come in over the top? To me, that seems fanciful. She's got a base in Uttar Pradesh, and she's been in politics now for 25 years, and she had a very good mentor early on and they've never been able to really break out of UP. So she'd be a very valuable uh, member of an alliance but such an alliance might come out as the largest single body in a new parliament but they might not last very long either. You focused on UP, but there are a number of key state elections between now and the national poll. Uh, To what extent, I guess, are they what the opposition is focused on? And to what extent could they change the game by the time we get to the national poll? I think the state elections that are coming up in five states and two in states in particular, Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh, they're big states. They're ruled by the BJP. It looks like the BJP is likely to lose the Rajasthan state election. Its leader in Rajasthan is very unpopular in opinion polls and general sort of commentary that I've been reading from India. It looks like the Rajasthan is going to be very tough for the BJP to win. Madhya Pradesh will also be very challenging. Rahul Gandhi is spending a lot of time in Madhya Pradesh. And I think other opposition leaders are also going to spend a lot of time in Madhya Pradesh. So if the BJP wins in both Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh, of course, it will significantly boost its chances in the Lok Sabha election. But if the BJP loses both of these states, then I think it will have an impact, a negative impact for the BJP in the Lok Sabha elections. The uh, the morale, I think, of opposition parties would be greatly enhanced if uh, they can win either of these two, but and certainly both. And that that will make a difference because at the moment you'd have to say there was no uh, nothing is crystallizing around an opposition alliance uh, in the way that a victory somewhere might help that crystallization. Can we just uh, have a look at Narendra Modi? The outcome ultimately depends how these almost 800 million voters consider him. If we do backtrack and have a look at who he is, he's the son of a, a chaiwala or a tea seller. He's a former chief minister of Gujarat. But Pradeep, who is he? Well, Modi is a very clever politician. He had never governed anything. He had never held any office in government at any level before he was sent to Gujarat to become the chief minister. He was a general secretary of the BJP, uh, but otherwise he had spent most of his life as a pracharak or essentially a preacher and organizer of the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, the RSS, which is the ideological mentor of the BJP. Uh, RSS normally doesn't get involved in elections, although individual candidates belonging to RSS do contest elections. But RSS is a very powerful organization, and Modi spent most of his life in the RSS. It was only during a state crisis, a political crisis at the state level, that the BJP leadership decided to send him to Gujarat to become the chief minister. Once he got to Gujarat, he focused on creating a narrative of economic good governance, 
that he was delivering good governance. Gujarat was always historically, economically quite a successful state. And Modi tapped into that, but he also focused on addressing, for example, electricity shortages in Gujarat. He created a parallel grid, a private grid, which offered an alternative to farmers and to you know small and medium-sized enterprises if they wanted to have more reliable access to electricity. You know they had that at higher prices. You know so you could plug into the private grid. So, Robin, do you agree, clever politician, but is he also a politician who delivers? He would certainly say he was, and he's very good at and, telling and you that. tell me oh, the politician who wouldn't. Yes, <laughs> oh, he'll tell you that over and over again and demonstrate it in many different ways. For a chap who really did have modest beginnings as a lower caste person who was working in a sort of petty merchant family, it's his connection with the RSS and the fact that he was a devoted social worker for the organization for many years. But he learned a lot. You can see him preparing for being prime minister from, a, I think, think a very young age. And his work gave him a grassroots understanding that was very important. He also went to America twice in the 1990s for sort of study trips. And you get the feeling he's read every uh, minute manager book in every airport bookshop you've ever been in, because he picks up on these kinds of things very quickly and finds people who can execute for him. So yes, I think in Gujarat, he brought electricity and he built roads. And there's nothing that electors like better than being able to switch on the lights and get out on the highway. And Modi was able to deliver both of those and made a great song and dance about doing it, just as he's done as Prime Minister. He's very good at the song and dance. Well, indeed, I was going to say, I mean, he's a prolific social media user and rather impressively, he's the third most followed political leader on Twitter. That is key for him, isn't it, when you consider the large proportion of the Indian population who are under 25? Well, the 2014 election was classic. He employed people who had the skills to allow him to go home to Ahmedabad, his capital in Gujarat, every night and be beamed in by hologram on 250 village-based vans to villages all around North India to give talks. So suddenly in your village, the truck would roll in, they would set up the stage, and at the appointed time, you'd see the prime minister being beamed down from a satellite somewhere, giving you a talk about how he was going to make India a better place after he won the election. Wonderful sense of what the media is capable of doing in the 21st century. And also, Pradeep, very good at controlling the message. I mean, often social media and indeed the uh, the holograms, it's a rather one-way street of communication. Indeed, indeed. I mean, it's really very surprising that Modi probably is the only democratically elected leader of a democracy, and India is, of course, the largest democracy in the world, who has never given a press conference since he became prime minister. Never. Not a single press conference. Modi doesn't give press conferences. He interacts on Diwali Festival, which is coming up. He will interact with the journalists. He will have a party for them, but he doesn't answer any questions. The journalists, in fact, go and have selfies taken with him, but it's not a press conference. So it's interesting how he's been able to control the message by refusing to give any press conferences. He has given a very limited number of interviews only to select journalists who would essentially say, you know, what the BJP would like them to say. There was a very interesting episode last year when he was in Singapore. In Singapore, he was at a forum at, I think, the Nanyang Technological University. And um, he was speaking in Hindi and there was an interpreter. But Modi spoke briefly 
whereas the interpreter had been given a much longer statement. And the interpreter didn't pay attention to where Modi stopped, and she continued to read this very long, very detailed sort of narrative of India's success under Prime Minister Modi. And that kind of proved that, you know, even when he does agrees to appear in a public forum, it's all pre-prepared. Uh, similarly with Parliament, he is uh, an infrequent attender and an infrequent speaker in Parliament. He doesn't lead his party in Parliament from the front. I'm Ali Moore and I'm with India Watchers, Dr. Pradi Tunisia and Professor Robin Jeffrey. We're talking about Narendra Modi and the BJP's prospects of holding on to power in India's national election slated for 2019. So, Robin, even if Modi did subject himself to extensive media scrutiny, how comfortable or uncomfortable would the questions be? I mean, India has an enviable economic growth at the moment. Modi's fated as he travels the world. His campaign slogan in 2014 was, good days are coming. Would those questions be awkward? In terms of where are the vulnerabilities in Modi and the current government, I think it's in trying to poke holes in so much of the flim-flam that has gone with the many programs that have been announced. There would be a dozen major iconic programs that are underway at the moment. Some no doubt are delivering, but others I think are capable of being ridiculed and uh, being challenged by opposition politicians, which I'm not sure, Pradeep, is that being done very successfully by any of the opposition at this stage? I think opposition hasn't really been able to attack Modi in a systematic and concerted manner. Rahul Gandhi has not proven to be a very good sort of communicator. I mean, he's improving, but he's no match for Modi. Modi is very clever when it comes to communicating in a monologue form with the audiences. So Modi has launched a number of populist programs. For example, recently the government of India under Modi launched this program for healthcare, which is now known as Modi Care. I mean, popularly, it's got a different name. And Modi Care program promises to deliver government-funded healthcare to 500 million Indians. It promises for every person who is covered by the scheme up to 500,000, half a million rupees, which is about 10,000 Australian dollars a year in medical coverage. But at the same time, there is no clear indication of how much money has been allocated for the scheme. I mean, this scheme, by all accounts, if um, most people in India took advantage of the scheme, it'll cost trillions of rupees. According to one source I was reading last night, it could be 30 trillion rupees, uh, which is more than the government of India's total spending. So it's a populist move in the sense that it's been announced, government has said what kind of benefit it's going to offer to the people. But at the end of the day, whether they will actually deliver on this is important. But there's been Clean India, there's been Make in India, there's been Digital India, a number of campaigns. Have they been, by and large, successful in the past, these other campaigns? Each of these campaigns, and, and these campaigns that we just mentioned, were launched soon after the BJP came to power. And each of these campaigns had its own logos, it had its own marketing team, in fact, it had proper advertising teams. But essentially, after four and a half years, the success, for example, of Digital India is very limited. Yes, the use of you know, data in India is growing. And you know, some people argue that now 
average Indian consumes more data than average Chinese. But on the whole, in terms of creating employment opportunities, in terms of creating economic growth through this new initiative, there is really very little evidence to show that this has succeeded. If you looked at the Clean India campaign, and as uh, Pradeep saying, all of these campaigns have very nice websites that are kept up to date. If you look at the Clean India campaign and its website, you'll see that they are about to achieve their targets of building enough toilets for all of India by next year. And they're going to achieve those targets ahead of schedule. Then, of course, you have to ask what kind of toilets and is anybody using them? Now, that's something that uh, I think is uh, a problem that will be increasingly important over the next year, but probably not in time to be the next election, that in fact, this is a program that promised literally concrete results. The concrete results may be there, but if the concrete crumbles in 18 months, or in fact, people carry away the concrete to build a cowshed with it, which is all very possible, then it will be a program that can be ridiculed, a little bit like the demonetization that was undertaken two years ago. And indeed, I want to get to demonetization in just a minute. But Robin, I did say to you that there's an enviable economic growth rate, but it's a fact, isn't it, that the economic progress has fallen short of expectations in many areas. And indeed, this uh, sort of economic revival has not been evenly spread across the country. I think that's right. If you look at maps of state domestic product, it varies terrifically. The South Indian states on the whole look better, Gujarat, Maharashtra in the West, whereas the East and the North, much less so. But this, of course, this is something that you encounter when you're talking about something the size of Europe and nearly three times the population of Europe. But I guess if you look at sectors that played such a key part in 2014, like the rural sector, for example, farming jobs have actually declined. I think that's right. I think the agricultural situation in India is one that is going to be very troublesome for Indian governments for coming years because India is urbanizing and that means cities are spreading out. They're acquiring agricultural land. Uh, Agriculturalists are either aggrieved at not getting the compensation they feel they deserve or if they accept it, they find it's not enough. There's a lot of dispossession, I think, going on agriculturally and there's a certain amount of degradation of land even in the most fertile tracts because we've now had nearly three generations of green revolution farming. And green revolution farming can be destructive to the land if excessive fertilizers, excessive pesticide, too much irrigation is carried out. The land is harmed thereby. And I think that's true in some of the real granaries of India, particularly Punjab. Pradeep, how do you see this uneven economic distribution and growth? See, before Modi came to power, in India, people used to talk about the Bimaru states. Uh, Bimaru referred to states like Bihar and Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan, Uttar Pradesh. The Bimaru can also be translated as sick states. Uh, Bimar means to be sick. And if you look at the progress, the development in these states, really not a lot has changed, even though most of these states are now run by BJP or the BJP allies. But in terms of governance, in terms of economic development, really very little has changed. Rajasthan has done well in some areas, but not so well in other areas. 
in UP where Modi appointed or the BJP appointed a holy man in saffron clothes as the chief minister of the state who had never governed anything, who had no administrative experience. He appointed him as the chief minister of the state, again with an eye on the 2019 elections rather than on development and governance. And as a result, really UP is not doing you know terribly well. But if I come back to the cleanliness thing, I think one of the initiatives as part of the Clean India Initiative, which I think Modi does deserve credit for, is the campaign to build toilets. I mean, he was the first prime minister who actually spoke about cleanliness and lack of you know, hygiene and lack of toilets from uh, the ramparts of the Red Fort in Delhi. You know, the prime minister of India addresses the nation on the 15th of August every year on the Independence Day. And Modi directly confronted this issue. So I give him credit for actually taking up this issue and they have built a lot of toilets. But I think for a developing country dealing with basic hygiene, particularly for children and women, is very important. And I think there he does deserve some credit. And indeed, I was going to say, with the demonetization, arguably, he also deserves credit for attempting to stamp out corruption, which was one of the aims of that. However, to overnight scrap 90% of a country's banknotes is rather a large undertaking. And Robin, that is still having ramifications, isn't it? I think they've got over the setback that they experienced in the first two quarters of the first half year after the demonetization. Um, politically, what the wonder is that it seems to have been a harmful thing for the economy overall. But at the same time, politically, it did Modi no harm whatsoever. And the stories you have are that poor people or people working hard at uh, very ordinary jobs would say to journalists and people who ask them, uh, yeah, it's hurting. It's a real pain in the neck. I can't get change when I take a rickshaw or I can't sell my goods and give people change and they don't like that. It's a real pain in the neck. But all those rich people, those rich crooks, they're really suffering. And that gave a lot of satisfaction. Whether the rich crooks really were suffering all that much. Uh, so it's, so, so sure. it hasn't damaged Modi, Pradeep? Would you agree with that assessment? Well, I think, I think it has. One of the critical bases of support for the BJP is the small and medium business people. And a lot of the small and medium business people conduct or used to conduct their business in cash, and I think they still do. And they were really badly affected. I was in India a week after the demonetization happened, and I remember talking to a guy who used to run cold storage, you know, for potatoes and things in Western UP. And he said, look, most of my clients are farmers, and they come and pay me in cash, and I'm sitting on this huge pile of cash now. I have no receipts. I can't go and prove to the bank, you know, where this money came from. Which is what you had to exactly, do. Exactly, which yeah. is what you had to do because this this is how the Indian economy operated. And he said, without any notice, without any warning, now we are dealing with this challenge and my business is down the gutter and we are struggling. And even though it may have lasted only a few months because they did print you know, new notes fairly quickly, but not quickly enough for a lot of people. So those people are going to in fact, reflect on that experience in 2016 and 2017. A lot of poor people, you know, your rickshaw pullers, your small traders, people selling vegetables and fruits on the street, they suffered because their incomes declined. I mean, you had vegetable vendors for months after demonetization going door to door, going in the streets and alleyways of India cities, trying to sell their vegetables and fruits, and people were buying only half of what they would normally buy because they didn't have cash. So while the middle class may have survived it better, but a lot of poor people actually didn't do so well. 
that's some of the economic issues at stake. What about the role of religion and Hindu nationalism, uh, particularly given, Robin, that religion is such a deeply political issue in India? I think a particular version of uh, Hindu beliefs is part of the RSS's philosophy, a key part of the RSS's philosophy, and a key part of Modi's. My hunch is if it gets difficult for the BJP in the months leading up to the national election, we'll see a lot more emphasis on building a glorious Hindu Raj in India. I think that's uh, the kind of button that the BJP and Modi will press if things are not looking so good electorally in February and March. Just this week, for example, the Supreme Court of India, which is hearing the case about the Ayodhya temple, which the BJP and and many other people in India would like to build on the site of this mosque, which was demolished in 1992. The Supreme Court, which has been hearing this case, has decided that they have postponed the hearing until January now. And just yesterday, there were politicians from the BJP who were saying that no government should make a decision on this. Well, they should mandate it be built. They should ordinance, Mm. yeah. They should should pass an ordinance and make a decision and don't wait for the Supreme Court to decide. So clearly, before the elections in Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, Chhattisgarh, and also the forthcoming Lok Sabha election, I think there is going to be an enhanced level of activity in trying to promote this cause of the temple, the Ram Temple. And that's one cause. But more broadly, under Modi, dozens of people have been assaulted and even killed by these self-styled cow protection squads. I mean, how do you see the risk of of violence? I mean, when the Modi government came to power in 2014, for the first couple of years, there were a number of incidents, some gruesome cases where people were lynched by the mob for, example, eating beef or allegedly eating beef or slaughtering a cow. These reports were coming from many parts of India, not only from North India. But what's important is that Modi did not condemn these incidents. The media and a lot of other people, intellectuals, were saying that this is a terrible thing and and the leadership needs to show that, you know, it will not accept this, will not tolerate it. But Modi kept quiet on most of these things. And when he did speak eventually, he did not directly address these issues. There's a Trumpian quality. If you uh, don't condemn outrageous actions. You suggest to other people that outrageous actions are really probably okay. And of course, the RSS for all its lifetime in independent India has made the case that the Congress party was soft on minorities and that this secularism that the Congress used to talk about, where the state would have no business poking its nose into people's faith beliefs, uh, that this secularism was a phony secularism, that India's glory and its culture were Hindu culture and these should be celebrated, emphasised and other groups who weren't part of a mainstream RSS version of Hinduism should uh, get on the bus and uh, either join the party or leave in the most extreme formulations. And when you say that, that Modi could stir the pot should the economic story not go well for him, what could that look like? Well, it would look like building a temple in Ayodhya to begin with, I think. Uh, That kind of an ordinance would outrage Muslims, I think, to begin with. And that would be probably useful in the lead up to an election if one were making very cynical calculations. And you'd like to think that those calculations aren't being made. 
Can I uh, briefly broaden this out to the international ramifications of these elections? And I guess particularly when you look at some of those incredibly important relationships like the one between India and Pakistan. Robin, how significant will the outcome of this election be for the international connections that India has? I think the Pakistan relationship is so fraught now that not very much is going to change. There will continue to be pinpricks and more than pinpricks on both sides, particularly from the Pakistan side, because the Pakistan army has an interest in retaining its hold in Pakistan. And that interest is served by poking the Indians hard at different times and appearing to assert Pakistan's interests. And India is constrained in some ways. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. Any kind of major attempt at an all-out war has real dangers for literally world peace, because you've got two nuclear armed states. But my reading would be that if Modi is the next prime minister, and I think he probably will be, but maybe leading a government not entirely with a BJP majority. But if he's the next prime minister, it will be steady as they go. The Pakistanis will probably hold off to a certain extent, and the Indians will retaliate when they feel they have to, but in a very measured kind of way. I agree. I mean, I think Pakistan is is critical, both in Pakistan and India. The Pakistan-India relationship is important. Modi initially, I think, did make an effort in trying to improve relations with Pakistan. He dropped in on the birthday of uh, the former prime minister of Pakistan with a message of goodwill. and At his private residence? At his private residence. Uh, he also invited the prime minister of Pakistan, along with the leaders of all the South Asian countries, to his own inauguration in 2014. The Pakistan prime minister at the time, Nawaz Sharif, despite opposition from his military, he came and he attended Modi's inauguration. But since then, things haven't gone very well because there were a number of terrorist attacks in India, which were largely driven from across the border. And Indian government blamed Pakistan, and Pakistan hasn't been able to help with that. So I don't think much is likely to change after the next election, as far as Pakistan is concerned. Let's finish with predictions. I know academics love to give predictions. And Robin, you pretty much gave yours just before. You think a a smaller majority... But Modi will make it back. Well, I think the BJP will emerge as the largest single party. Uh, whether that uh, single partiness is 200 seats, they need 280. Whether it's 200 seats or 195 or 220, that will determine to a certain extent how stable the coalition they can stick together afterwards will be. Uh, obviously, they'll be hoping for the closest they can get to 280. I would agree with Robin that the BJP will emerge as the largest political party. But I think the critical result will be UP. If the BJP doesn't win more than 25, 30 seats in UP, I think it'll be very difficult for them to form the government. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's that alliance. Indeed. Pradeep and Robin, thank you so much for talking to Ear to Asia. Thank you, Ellie. Thanks very much, Ellie. Our guests on Ear to Asia have been political scientist Dr Pradeep Tanisha of the University of Melbourne School of Social and Political Sciences and India historian Professor Robin Jeffrey of the Australia India Institute. 
Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, do let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 31st of October 2018. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.